Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Go Bold, your home for aerospace and defense news and views from around the world. I'm your host, Jyoti Atariwala, and today we'll be talking about NATO enhanced air policing. In 2014, Canada established Operation Reassurance, an operation that demonstrates Canada's commitment to NATO allies in the wake of the annexation of Crimea by the Russian Federation. As part of NATO's enhanced air policing mission, Operation Assurance reinforces NATO's collective defense and demonstrates the Alliance's combined strength and solidarity to any potential airspace aggressor. Air Task Force Romania is the air component of that operation as it provides deterrent measures in Central and Eastern Europe. This interview that you'll hear today took place in early 2020. My guest today is a 20-year veteran of the Royal Canadian Air Force. He's a CF-18 fighter pilot who's amassed 2,000 hours flying the Hornet, and he's leading Canada's Air Task Force that's been flying out of Romania. Lieutenant Colonel Forrest Rock, welcome to Go Bold. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, Colonel, please tell us what exactly is NATO Enhanced Air Policing, and why is Canada participating in this operation? Yeah, so as you uh, opened with, enhanced air policing is part of NATO assurance and deterrence measures uh, that were introduced in 2014. Um, through active participation in, uh, in this mission, the Canadian Armed Forces is helping uh, Romania and NATO protect the integrity of, uh, of the NATO airspace. And at the same time, it uh, demonstrates uh, Canada's support to NATO and our commitment to contributing to NATO assurance and deterrence measures. Um, Opera Assurance, uh, the, the operation that we're on, uh, exemplifies that commitment and also our ability and willingness to react uh, rapidly to international crises and work alongside our, our NATO allies, in this case, Romania. Fantastic. And uh, I believe this is uh, Block 51 of the NATO Enhanced Air Policing Mission. Um, what exactly does Block 51 mean? So uh, the, the blocks are just divided up over time. So this would just be the 51th, or sorry, the 51st iteration of, uh, of enhanced air policing here in uh, Romania. Um, you know, each, each block, uh, essentially a four-month period, uh, is given a number designation, and, and for us, it's block 51. Fantastic. And so for this particular block, um, is Canada leading? the effort out of the base in Romania? Uh, because to my understanding, usually there's two, uh, a, a primary and a secondary participant at each base. And I'm not sure if that's the same for Romania or if, it, if it's just solely Canada there. Not necessarily, no. So, so the Romanians are actually the primary uh, response uh, for uh, all, all air policing uh, in the Romanian area of operations. Uh, enhanced air policing is is really uh, an enhancement to that mission. So, you know, the Romanians are wholly capable of, of doing this mission, um, but NATO deploys forces to various locations to en to enhance it. So, that is our role here. Um, while Romania uh, maintains a, an alert posture, you know, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, uh, similar to what we do in Canada uh, under the NORAD mission, uh, here we're just augmenting that uh, that capability for them. Fantastic. Uh, so I'm sure planning starts months before deployment. Um, please talk to me about the process to deploy jets from Canada to the Baltic region. Um, where were the jets deploying from and what kind of logistics are involved? Absolutely. It's definitely not something you do at, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat. Uh, it does take quite a bit of time and effort, uh, you know, both on the resource and personnel side to uh, deploy forces anywhere in the world. Um, 
began in March. Uh, we had been identified uh, as the lead unit, uh, 401 Tactical Fighter Squadron out of Cold Lake, uh, as the lead unit for this particular uh, mission or for Block 51, uh, as it were, uh, with the main planning effort starting in March, as I said. So, uh, you know, in March, uh, we sat down, started looking at our, uh, our TONE or what would be uh, sort of the, the personnel requirement uh, to conduct the mission. Uh, and looking, of course, at the logistics requirements as well. Now, this being the, the third time that we've deployed to, uh, to this particular airbase and, and operated from here, uh, there was obviously a lot of, of lessons that we could learn from the previous years. Uh, so some of these uh, planning activities take, take less time than others, uh, but at the end of the day, each task force is unique, uh, so it does still require a, a certain amount of rigor and, and, uh, uh, and time uh, to figure out exactly what requirements are needed for the mission. Uh, once those are defined, uh, you know, of course, it's quite the distance to, to travel from Canada to, to Romania, um, and you do require a certain amount of uh, a very specific equipment to support flying operations. Um, you know, so each year uh, there's a significant airlift component, uh, you know, which is uh, satisfied through the uh, C-17s and, and C-130s that Canada has integral to the Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, and they, they essentially move a lot of our equipment. Uh, over to theater for us. Uh, and then, of course, there's a, an air to air refueling requirement as well to get the jets over the ocean uh, to here. And again, that's provided uh, integrally uh, through the Royal Canadian Air Force air to air refueling capability that we have with the CC 150T Polaris. Uh, so, all in all, you know, it's, uh, it's about eight months of planning uh, for a, a plan uh, to deploy the forces that gets executed within about a one week period, uh, you know, one, one week to two weeks max. Uh, so you'll have an influx of uh, personnel at the beginning. Uh, the airfield activation and surge team out of two wing uh, in Bagotville uh, came over here first, uh, started establishing the detachment for us. And then uh, about two weeks after their arrival, uh, we started seeing the arrival of the main body and of course the, uh, the F-18s and the rest of the uh, equipment that we require to operate for the time that we're here. Fantastic. Um, so I, I've had the privilege to fly in a CF-18, and uh, it was an amazing experience, and I'm very envious for, for the job that you have. Um, what's it like to fly over the Atlantic for such a long time, and how does that differ from a normal sortie where you're not crossing an ocean, for example? Um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, there's, there's many considerations that need to be taken into account, uh, you know, in terms of divert fields uh, and just in terms of your personal gear that you've got aware of crossing the ocean. Um, I, I'd love to you to kind of paint that picture for our listeners. Absolutely. There, there's certainly a lot to talk about when it comes to this uh, type of mission, although it seems fairly benign, uh, you know, transiting an airplane, an airplane from one location to another. It's actually a, a significantly risky mission. Uh, when you consider some of the, the things that you've already mentioned, the you know low lack of diver uh, places uh, or sorry airfields to go to, um, uh, you know the bottom line is that uh, when you cross the Atlantic Ocean, uh, it's it's a very serious mission. Uh, the pilots all wear uh, immersion suits or sort of like a dry suit, so that if they uh, you know unfortunately ended up in the water, that they would uh, you know have a good chance at survival. Um, and then, of course, uh, the air-to-air -air refueling component as you're traveling over it. it, it the, the time in flight is not unlike uh, taking an airliner over the ocean. Uh, you don't go there super fast. Uh, you cruise at about the same airspeed as, uh, as an airliner would, so it's about an eight-hour mission to, to do the entire uh, trip in one, uh, one hop or one sortie. Um, and uh, you refuel a lot. Uh, it, it might seem counterintuitive to the listeners, but 
actually refueling uh, almost constantly as you cross the ocean because you're trying to maintain a fuel a full fuel load on the jet so that if you do have to divert you have the fuel to actually go there so you find yourself refueling quite frequently um, and then in terms of the transit itself uh, to be totally honest it's a little boring uh, you're stuck inside the cockpit of the f-18 uh, you only really have what you brought with you so you know if you forgot to bring a bottle of water or you forgot to bring a snack uh, you're going to be hungry or thirsty the whole way, and of course, uh, using the bathroom over the Atlantic Ocean is a bit of a challenge in an airplane that you can't get up and walk to the bathroom in. Yeah, absolutely. And so, for those that aren't aware, uh, please explain to me what midair refueling is, and describe what exactly that entails. You know, when you're forming up on a Polaris uh, aircraft, and and how that process actually happens. Yeah. So, like you know, in, in normal operations. Uh, you know, uh, you would refuel the airplane on the ground, much like you see at a, at a normal airport. You'll see the airplanes there getting gas before, uh, before pushing back from the gate uh, to, to fly to whatever destination they're going to. Um, you know, most fighters have the capability to, to do that uh, refueling in the air. So there's a, a switch on the left side of the cockpit where you can put out uh, an air-to-air refueling probe. Uh, you fly up next to the, uh, to the Polaris tanker in this case. Uh, they stream out a hose that has a big basket on the end. And then uh, you have to put the air refueling probe inside the basket. And as soon as you've done that successfully, the fuel flows and uh, you end up getting more gas than you had when you started. Um, for, you know, a majority of the pilots, at least the ones from 401, uh, for this year, we had the benefit of going to exercise Trident Junction in Norway last fall. Uh, so all of our pilots had already completed a transatlantic crossing. Uh, so for them, it was uh, probably a bit less stressful, albeit in the, in the case of deploying our forces over to... Uh, to Romania, uh, the weather was better. We didn't have the uh, the winter weather over the Atlantic like we uh, did on our way to Norway. Uh, so that probably reduced the level of stress a little bit, uh, but it doesn't change the fact that there's a limited number of diverts and, uh, and not a lot of good places uh, to, to put the airplane if you had to uh, in an emergency situation. So uh, there's still a bit of stress there. Um, although I'll, I'll admit that in the summer, it's much better than in the winter. I, I'm sure. And which which route did you guys take as you were transiting across the Atlantic towards Romania? Yeah, so for us it was a multi-leg route uh, that took several days. Uh, we tend not to do the, the overflight in one uh, large uh, flight just because of the length of the, the flight. Uh, to fly from Cold Lake all the way to Romania I think would have been about a 13 and a half hour flight, which would have been quite long. Um, we try to limit the flights uh, to around a six to eight hour leg if possible. So uh, you know, we'll say on day one of the deployment, uh, the jets departed Cold Lake to Goose Bay. And then uh, the next day, uh, they flew on to uh, Prestwick, Scotland. And then the day after that, they flew here into Romania on the final leg. Fantastic. And, and how was the how were the aircraft configured? Um, you know, I, I, I'm aware, as I'm sure many of our readers are, that, you know, uh, the CF-18 can have uh, external fuel tanks. So um, I'd imagine you guys are maximized for that. Yeah, absolutely. So for uh, for transatlantic flights, or even when we deploy the aircraft, uh, you know, domestically within Canada uh, or within the United States for something like a training exercise, we fly with a three tank configuration. Uh, for for a mission like this, where you know you're deploying forces for several months, uh, we have a small uh, canister that looks a lot like a, a fuel tank, but it's actually a luggage pod. So there's a place for all the the air crew to put all of their gear and all the things they need to bring with them for their extended stay on the deployment. Um, and then, of course, when we arrive in, uh, into uh, theater, in this case into Romania, uh, we can reconfigure the aircraft into one that is more suitable for the mission set. But yeah, for the transit, we were 
right on. And I got to ask this. So what's what's your uh, what's your tailbone uh, endurance like? Because you mentioned that it's a it's a long flight. And even though you broke it up, um, you know, I know from experience from having that one opportunity to fly in the F-18 that, you know, as you said, it's not a very big environment. It's a small cockpit and or, you know, tight. But um, it's not like those seats are, are optimized for comfort. No, not necessarily, but over time, uh, you know, your your body does become accustomed to sitting in a, in a fairly rigid position, and, um, you know, the, as, as you probably experienced when you flew, like, there's uh, multiple positions that you can put the seat into, so, uh, you know, in terms of uh, height and, uh, and move the rudder pedals forward or back to make sure that you're actually seated comfortably, but certainly when you're on these longer missions, you do find yourself maybe making more seat adjustments and adjustments to your sitting position than you would on a shorter mission where, uh, you know, maybe of one hour in length where you wouldn't be super concerned about it. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so talk to me about uh, arriving in Romania and what's the handover process like? Uh, who who had the, uh, the command before you guys? So uh, for us, uh, when we arrived, the, uh, the Italian Air Force was still uh, operating, sorry, from the base. Um, as they drew down their mission, we started to build ours up. So, uh, you know, when that airfield uh, activation and surge team arrived, the, uh, the Italians were still uh, completing their enhanced air policing mandate. Uh, and as they got closer towards the end of August uh, and our jets arrived, we started transitioning ours into the theater. So for us, uh, you know, the, the major handover in terms of the enhanced air policing mission occurred really with the Italian Air Force. Uh, but also, uh, you know, there's there's significant handover to complete with the command and control elements that actually uh, give us the direction uh, that we require to complete our mission. So on that side, it was more so with, uh, with the Romanian uh, Control and Reporting Center in, uh, in Bucharest who uh, report directly to the Combined Air Operations Center in Torrejon, Spain, which is the, uh, the operational level command of, of the Enhanced Air Policing Mission in this particular uh, area of operations. Okay. Talk to me about living on the base in Romania. What's the environment like? And uh, what is the collaboration like between you guys and the Romanian hosts? Um, uh, I'd be very keen to kind of know what it's like to actually just live in Romania while on this operation. Absolutely. So um, this is a Romanian base, uh, although there is a a very, uh, a fairly significant uh, U.S. presence here as well. They have uh, a large number of rotational forces that, that come in and out of this particular air base. Um, so the, the living conditions are actually are actually quite good. Um, you know, there's a, obvious reasons, a large housing uh, complex where people uh, would have a room and, and be able to sleep or have some free time. Uh, there's a large defac or a, like a mess hall where you eat. The food is quite good. Uh, like any other uh, U.S. supported installation, uh, there's several uh, gyms where you can go get a workout in, uh, morale and welfare centers, uh, and every time Canada deploys somewhere, we establish something called Canada House, which is essentially a Canadian-only place where you can go and, and relax um, at the end of the day. So, uh, you know, I, I'd say overall, uh, compared to other places that I've been in my career, this, this one, uh, the living conditions are quite good. Fantastic. And so how many aircraft did you guys bring over for, for this mission? And uh, describe to me um, the airspace uh, around Romania and that Baltic region that you guys were operating in. Okay. So uh, so our mission is a, is a little bit different than the previous years. We actually deployed initially with six aircraft, uh, and that was just to support the volume of, uh, of additional taskings that we were going to um, 
participate in uh, during the first part of the deployment. So midway through our deployment, we actually uh, completed what we call a jet swap. Uh, we flew uh, a different aircraft, actually several of them over here, and replaced them, uh, replaced some of the aircraft that we had already in theater, uh, and and then ultimately went down to five aircraft as well for the remainder of the deployment. So um, we went from six to five, uh, and like I said, that was just to support the uh, the increased volume of multinational joint training that we were completing with other forces in the region. So. We did uh, some flying with the Bulgarian Air Force and the Romanian Air Force, a uh, sort of cross-border exercise at the beginning of the deployment. Uh, we also deployed some forces to the uh, Ostrava Air Show in the Czech Republic, uh, as well as uh, to Latvia uh, to participate in some uh, close air support training with the enhanced uh, battle group that's up there. Uh, and of course, uh, we also completed the Joint Terminal Attack Controller course here in Romania. So we actually had some Army uh, forces on the ground who were uh, completing some needed training uh, that we were supporting for them. And right around there is when uh, the sixth airplane went home. And then, you know, for the rest of the deployment, uh, we've really had a strong focus on uh, completing dissimilar air combat training with the MiG-21 uh, Lancers or the F-16s uh, from Romania, uh, as well as some uh, increased uh, naval exercises, or sorry, increased uh, exercises uh, from a naval perspective with uh, Romanian and French ships, as well as a U.S. ship. Uh, the airspace itself, um, you know, is, uh, is very easy to operate in. Uh, there's several overland airspaces where we completed a majority uh, of our multinational joint training. Um, and then, you know, so from an assurance perspective, that's where a majority of that, uh, those activities occurred. Uh, from a deterrence perspective, uh, pretty much 100% of those activities occurred over the uh, Romanian uh, or sorry, within the Romanian flight information region, uh, which extends to about 84 miles off the coast of Romania. And that's where, you know, we would see any of these, uh, the, the, you know, the intercepts or um, taskings from the operational headquarters when we're actually conducting uh, the deterrence component of enhanced air policing. Do you guys have many divert airfields around there? Um, I would imagine there's probably quite a few. Yeah, there are. There's a, there's a, a good handful of them, and, uh, and they're all quite close, so... Uh, you know, not a. There isn't a requirement here to hold a, a tremendous amount of divert gas. Uh, there's there's a lot of very close options, um, and it, it seems that in the four months we were here, we always had a, a totally suitable alternate to use uh, if we required one. Oh, that's fantastic. And so, uh, describe to me how the aircraft were configured, um, and also I would I would love to get your thoughts on just flying dissimilar air combat uh, ACM air combat maneuvering because. Um, in Canada, I'm sure you would fly, you know, uh, against your own F-18s, uh, one acting as blue and, and the other one acting as red air, or flying with top aces jets. But um, to fly with other tactical fighters, I'm sure, is an invaluable experience. And I would love for you to kind of share your thoughts about that. Okay. Uh, so from a configuration perspective, uh, it, it varied throughout the deployment. Um you know, at the beginning of the deployment, uh, the, the weather in Romania is very favorable, so we actually flew uh, a majority of our missions centerline configuration. Uh, alternates were not, you know, or divert airfields were not really something that we needed uh, for the first, I'd say, two months of the deployment. Uh, so, you know, being able to fly in a, in a more clean configuration uh, just increases the aircraft's performance and, and handling. Uh, so we opted for that, and as the weather 
uh, you know, deteriorated as we got closer into the, or sorry, as we got closer to winter and in through the fall months, uh, as the weather sort of started coming in off the Black Sea, we decided that we'd uh, take a two-tank configuration just to have a bit, a bit more gas in case we did have to go to an alternate. For the, uh, the similar air combat training, uh, I think it's been very beneficial. Uh, as I said, we, uh, you know, we've flown with the uh, Romanian MiG-21 Lancers. Uh, we also had an opportunity to fly with some of their F-16s, um, which was uh, which was fantastic. Uh, in our time here, you know, we also uh, participated in an exercise called Exercise Ramstein Dust, uh, which was like a, a NATO effort to uh, increase uh, air training within Romania. So we had a NATO AWACS for a couple of days, uh, as well as some ground-based uh, control from uh, from NATO. Uh, all in all, I would say it was very positive. The interactions uh, with the Romanian pilots have been fantastic. Uh, incredibly professional aviators, uh, and it was a real, uh, real pleasure for us to fly with them. Hey, everybody. I'd like to take a quick minute to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic plays such an important role in training our allied warfighters that the things that Colonel Rock has been sharing about what it's been like to train and how they hone their skills, it's exactly the type of stuff that Cubic helps allied warfighters with. So since inventing air combat maneuvering instrumentation, or ACMI, in the early 1970s, Cubic continues to lead the industry as the world's foremost provider of air combat training systems. So air crews from the United States and allied partners, they rely on cubic systems to prepare for combat missions more effectively and with less risk. So I encourage you to take a look at their website. Um, they're an amazing company and they are a wonderful partner to this podcast. Please visit them at cubic.com. Thanks everybody. Um, now let's get back to our show. So before we get into like the alert taskings and the actual NATO mission, um, what was the operating tempo like for you guys? How often were you flying uh, prior to actually really delving into the enhanced air policing mission? Yeah, so, so the, the mandate actually starts as soon as we arrive. So our, our mandate uh, to complete enhanced air policing ran from September 1st, uh, 2019 until January 1st, 2020. Um, when, when the jets arrived, uh, at the end of August, uh, we had about a week uh, where we could do some local flying, uh, some familiarization with the airspace and the operating procedures here, uh, obviously understanding that they're different than they are in, uh, in Canada or North America. So, so like I said, about a week of, uh, of that. And then uh, NATO actually deploys a team of people uh, to each enhanced air policing mission. Uh, they come in at the beginning and they make sure that the, the force is capable of following all of the you know, tactics, techniques and procedures. Uh, that are required uh, to conduct the mission, and at the end of that three-day evaluation, uh, they certify you to, uh, to, com- to, to conduct enhanced air policing uh, under the NATO uh, uh, operational headquarters. So for us, uh, about a week and a half into our deployment, uh, we received our certification, and then we immediately started uh, air policing the next day.
The sound that you just heard is the actual siren that's played at the Romanian base when an alert scramble is given. So paint the picture of how the aircraft are configured in terms of, you know, weapons and loadout. And what then please describe what an alert launch is like. Um, how many did you guys do and uh, what types of inter- aircraft did you intercept? Okay, so uh, in terms of configuration, uh, it was much the same as, uh, as we discussed previously. At the beginning, we, even in our QRA uh, configuration, we, we flew a centerline configuration. Uh, with AIM-9s and uh, AIM-120s. As the weather got worse, we uh, augmented the fuel capability, uh, or sorry, the fuel uh, load that we carried by putting in an extra external tank on the aircraft, Uh, but we did not change the the configuration for the the weapons, so still the AIM-9s and still the AIM-120s. And then every uh, aircraft that goes into the uh, the QRA is typically uh, outfitted with a sniper targeting pod. Uh, to help you get uh, longer range uh, visual ID of any aircraft that you might intercept. In terms of uh, how the QRA works, uh, it's much the same as it is in NORAD, uh, albeit the response here is, uh, is it, it, it's not faster, uh, but the reaction is, is typically a little faster. The distance, obviously, from uh, you know Romania to Crimea is only 180 miles, and at, at fighter speeds, that doesn't take a very long time to cover. Uh, so. Uh, for us, uh, you know, we have the forces, uh, just like in Canada, uh, we have resources, so F-18s in the QRA, armed and configured and ready to uh, ready to fly. We have the pilots on standby and, uh, and all the requisite ground crew and uh, force protection and operational support uh, personnel required to facilitate a rapid launch. Once that launch occurs, uh, we get airborne as fast as possible. Um, and then uh, enter into the airspace to complete whatever mission we've been assigned. So that could be a, a combat air patrol, uh, something as simple as going to a point and, and holding uh, and waiting for, uh, for a follow-on tasking, or it could go right to a, a visual identification or a shadow tasking uh, where we immediately intercept the aircraft that uh, we have been tasked to uh, identify. So how many aircraft did you guys uh, intercept during your four-month mission there? I can... Uh, say that in the time we were here in, in Romania, we flew uh, 350 sorties and uh, just over 500 hours. Um, now, not all of that would have gone to just doing intercepts. Uh, that includes all of the multinational joint training that we, uh, we accomplished. Uh, but I can say that uh, any time that we were holding uh, the QRA uh, on NATO's behalf here in Romania and uh, a track of interest um, popped up in the airspace, uh, we responded within the correct amount of time uh, and completed the mission to 100%. So are you able to share any types of aircraft that you might have intercepted, Colonel? What I can say is that, um, you know, in Canada, we often see, uh, you know, as we're conducting Northern Sovereignty operations under NORAD, uh, we often see, uh, you know, longer range aircraft, things like, uh, you know, the Bear Bombers, uh, Blackjacks, things like that. Here, uh, just based on the proximity to, uh, to the Crimean Peninsula, a majority of the aircraft that we actually uh, see uh, are not those longer range strategic type assets. They're more tactical level assets. That's not, necessar- that's not necessarily to say that they're all fighters. Uh, there are you know, a, a large number of uh, different types of aircraft that are stationed on the Crimean Peninsula, you know, ranging from uh, SU-24s to B-12 males to uh, flankers to IL-38 maze. Uh, there, there's a wide range of aircraft that, uh, 
that uh, the Russians could fly in close proximity to the Romanian airspace that we could be tasked to intercept. So what types of aircraft did you intercept? And more specifically, I would like to know your thoughts as a pilot of closing in on Russian aircraft. What's that like? Yeah, so in, the, uh, in all the time that we were holding uh, you know, the QRA here in Romania, uh, we had approximately uh, 15 uh, reactions to uh, tracks of interest in the uh, Romanian FIR. Uh, of those 15 reactions, uh, because all of them don't necessarily result in a, in a scramble and an intercept, uh, we had five uh, total uh, times where we, uh, you know, intercepted or uh, shadowed, uh, you know, intercept is a pretty broad term. Uh, you know, intercept could be taken to mean visual identification. It could be taken to mean shadow as well. Um, so I'd say uh, five times uh, we completed uh, intercepts. Uh, with what I set in mind, and uh, a majority of those were against SU-24 fencers, uh, and with one intercept against a, a B-12 male. Fantastic. And and as a pilot, um, describe to me the process of coming in to shadow one of those aircraft. Um, you know, is there a particular mission or intercept uh, that stands out in your mind? And... Um, Talk me through the process of getting vectored in towards uh, towards a position where you would shadow an aircraft like that. Yeah, okay, so uh, you know, so as I said, it's a it's a very fast reaction, uh, especially with the uh, you know with with the uh, the peninsula being so close to Romania. Uh, typically, uh, as soon as the jets are airborne uh, and under control of the of the CRC in Bucharest. Uh, they're immediately vectored uh, towards an intercept uh, point um, so that they can facilitate, you know, whether it's a visual identification or a shadow of the of the aircraft. Uh, visual identification, I think, uh, you know, it speaks for itself. You, you fly in uh, close to it and visually identify it. Um, and then for a shadow mission, uh, you don't necessarily uh, fly in as close. You know, you use the other onboard systems that you have, such as the, the sniper targeting pod, to identify what type of aircraft that is, but you remain... Uh, more covert, uh, or perhaps even overt, but you don't get as close. Uh, I'd say a majority of the missions that we completed here were, were more shadow, uh, although we did do one uh, visual identification against the B-12 male, and I'd say that one was, although it was a B-12 male, it was, it was probably one of the more exciting ones, given that it was our first intercept of the deployment. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the pilots that conducted it uh, had never completed an intercept uh, like that in their lives. Uh, so for them, it was very exciting uh, to, to go out and actually intercept uh, another aircraft, uh, identify it, and then uh, hand it off to the follow-on uh, QRA uh, that intercepted it after. Fantastic. And and what was that response like? You know, when you came in closer to the mail, and you know, how how was uh, how was the Russian response like in terms of you know once they realized that you guys were there? Uh, so it. it the aircraft it just continued on its flight path uh, it was flowing south and uh, eventually it got to the uh, to the Bulgarian flight information region and then it just crossed over and continued um, there was no uh, indication to us at the time that they uh, they were aware that we were actually there uh, we ended up staying still quite a bit away from them but got in close enough to visually identify it fantastic how did the jets perform in terms of availability and what's maintenance like for the f-18 yeah, the, the jets held up very well. 
Um, you know, it's uh, it, probably not a surprise to anybody listening, but, uh, you know, aircraft do break. They're complicated uh, machines uh, with a lot of systems and subsystems. And often, uh, you know, you'll, you'll have something break. The big challenge with maintaining uh, good serviceability on a deployed operation is typically your, your parts supply chain. You know, so we do deploy over uh, on any operation that we uh, participate in with a large volume of, of parts and, um, you know, the required uh, uh, consumables to make sure that we can operate. But, of course, uh, to take every, you know, to take one of every single thing that could break would, uh, would not be possible. Uh, and often, you know, if you have a complicated uh, aircraft snag or a complicated uh, unserviceability, uh, you may not have all the tools required to actually complete the work or the parts required to complete that work. So, you know, there are sometimes aircraft that stay, uh, that get broken, uh, and they do stay on the ground for a, a more extended period of time until you can either, uh, you know, get the required parts from Canada via uh, an airlift, like from a C-17 or from a C-130, um, or until you can ship them uh, commercially, depending on what the part is. So, you know, sometimes aircraft are broken for uh, an extended period of time. Sometimes the aircraft lands, it's unserviceable, and uh, within, you know, an hour to two hours, it's uh, fixed again and back on the line. Uh, the maintenance personnel that we have are absolutely uh, fantastic. Uh, a lot of experience within uh, the, the maintenance detachment here, uh, and they were able to rectify any problems that we had in, in very short order, save for those that required uh, additional support from Canada. Fantastic. And I have to ask this just purely out of curiosity. Um, are any of the jets that you guys brought out, uh, were any of them the the quote-unquote new uh, Australian uh, F-18s that have been converted over to CF-18 configuration? Uh, no. For the aircraft that we deployed uh, to, uh, to Romania, they're all uh, original lot uh, Hornets that uh, Canada purchased. Um, and that's not to say that we couldn't have deployed uh, the newer aircraft. Uh, it's just that 401 Squadron has not been assigned any of them yet. So all of our aircraft are still the, uh, the Canadian ones. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Um, so who did you hand over to? And uh, when are the Canadian jets repatriating to Canada? And will that just be a reverse course of the, of the flight path that you took to get out to Romania? Yeah, so for us, there is, uh, there is no handover. Uh, we assent, well, there is essentially we hand the entire mission uh, back to the Romanians. Uh, typically, the first block of each year uh, in this particular area of operations is, is unfilled, um, just based on the lower activity uh, that occurs. Uh, NATO doesn't view it as uh, uh, a higher priority than the other two blocks that would occur uh, during the year, so the summer block and then the, the end of summer, fall, winter block that we normally fill. Uh, so for us, there is no handover to another uh, country per se, other than uh, just back to Romania for the full responsibility. And then, um, you know, typically in, in April, uh, a new unit would show up uh, to enhance uh, their air policing capability. But I believe next summer uh, it's remaining vacant. So I think the next uh, rotation of forces into uh, this particular air base will be uh, Canada next fall. So that was not my next question. We are returning. Uh, yes, that is the uh, plan right now. We've already committed to the uh, 2020 rotation, uh, and we'll be back here for the same time period next uh, next fall. Fantastic. It'll be Block 54, I think. Oh, right on. And do you know which uh, which squadron is tasked for that iteration? Yeah, it'll be uh, 433 Squadron out of uh, Bagotville, Quebec. We hope you are enjoying this episode of the Go Bold podcast. Please take a moment to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our fabulous guests and topics.
Now, back to our show. So is there anything else that stands out uh, to you from this deployment, uh, Colonel? Um, something that maybe I might not have asked? Actually, uh, you know, the, the, the big thing um, that, that may be worth talking about is uh, just this, is the increase in uh, multinational joint training uh, that is occurring uh, on our, that has occurred, sorry, in our rotation. So I, I alluded to it earlier in our conversation, but we've done a, a lot of uh, a lot of multinational joint training. In fact, I'd say of the non-QRA uh, uh, flying that we've done, about 70% of our flying has been multinational and joint. So, you know, whether uh, the cross-border exercise uh, with Romania and Bulgaria or deploying our assets up to Latvia to conduct close air support with the enhanced uh, battle group uh, operating there, uh, the joint terminal attack controller training, uh, or the uh, the naval exercises that we participated in with the uh, Romanian, French, and U.S. ships. Uh, you know, we've we've actually uh, optimized, I think, the use of the uh, the assets that we have here in theater uh, to uh, you know not only conduct uh, the deterrence component of this mission or the QRA, uh, but at the same time to enhance the uh, the assurance component of it. Um, and really uh, demonstrate the ability of NATO to work together uh, seamlessly and uh, with, with minimal uh, warning and time. Uh, the other component of this mission that uh, is one that you know we're very proud of is, uh, is, is the outreach activities that we've completed. So every year uh, since 2017, uh, the task force that's deployed here is, you know, in, in, in I'd say typical Canadian fashion, uh, tried to get involved in the local community and help some folks in need. Uh, you know, working at local orphanages, uh, helping with infrastructure projects, um, uh, things like that. Uh, for us, we, we really tried to step it up a notch uh, on that end and really demonstrate Canadian values and, uh, and beliefs uh, to our Romanian partners. Uh, you know, and we've, uh, we've invested a significant amount of, uh, of time, all volunteer time from members of the task force, uh, to go to local orphanages, uh, work with the Center uh, for Children with Disabilities in Constanta, uh, to really just uh, improve the quality of life for, for all of those people. Uh, so for us, I think it's a, it's a big point of pride. I think we've invested over 200 hours of, uh, of, uh, of labor uh, and time uh, with local orphanages and that uh, Center for Children with Disabilities, as well as uh, secured some funding through what's called the Boomer's Legacy Fund uh, to, uh, to purchase some, some much-needed equipment uh, for uh, the Center for Children with Disabilities uh, to help improve the quality of life and care that can be provided to the children that live there. So I think uh, for us, that's one of our, you know, aside from all the mission accomplishments uh, that we've had, uh, the intercepts, the multinational joint training, um, you know, that's that's been successful for us and it's something we're very proud of, but equally proud, um, we're equally proud, sorry, of, uh, of the accomplishments that we've had in terms of outreach and really projecting Canadian values and beliefs uh, on this deployment. You know, Colonel, as a, as a Canadian, that gives me a, also a, a very great sense of pride. I, I'm I'm glad to hear that we're doing that. It's not just the mission, but it's also you know looking out for our allies and colleagues and and just citizens at large. I think that's uh, it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to extend Canadian, I guess, hospitality and kindness around the world. Absolutely, and that's uh, that's one of the reasons that we we took that component of our of our, or not that component, but I suppose we, we took this aspect of, uh, of what we wanted to accomplish here uh, as seriously as we did. So we're, uh, we're very happy with it. Uh, all in all, like I said, about 200 hours of uh, volunteer time for members of the task force. And uh, our most recent estimate 
is uh, just under $30,000 of, of money either you know donated to local charities uh, through donations from members of the task force uh, or uh, you know the, uh, the, the the funding that we secured from the Boomers Legacy Fund to help out the uh, Center for Children Center for Children with Disabilities and also uh, you know make uh, all the Romanian orphan uh, orphanages around here that we could support uh, have all the kids have a slightly better Christmas. That's fantastic. Uh, I'm really happy to hear that. So I recall from my visit out to the Baltic region that uh, they're always, or I guess it's typical, to have a a symbol of the deployment. Um, so follow-on nations can see, hey, Canada was here during this particular block. Um, what have you guys erected at that base, if anything, to kind of signify this block of NATO enhanced air policing? You're right. At the end of a deployment, often task forces, uh, you know, give something back to the place that they were uh, they were operating in, something that you know really puts their stamp on it that they were here. Uh, for us, um, we've done a few things. I mean, notwithstanding all of the all of the things we've done in town, I know that. Uh, you know all the orphanages that we've supported in the uh, the Center for Children with Disabilities. I know they're very uh, happy uh, with what uh, we've done there, and I'm sure that that legacy will will live on for for quite a while. Um, in terms of what we've uh, put up around the base, uh, we we got our mission support element uh, construction engineering folks to uh, to make some giant maple leaves. Uh, we painted them all red, of course, and uh, embedded a picture of the task force with uh, the task force coin. Uh, as well as one of our task force patches on it, and we've we've probably given out more of those around the base uh, than we needed to. But uh, you know, it, it, I I have to stop short of saying there's one hanging in every facility here, uh, but there's definitely one in the gym, definitely one in the DFAC, um, and, and definitely one over at the uh, the Romanian and U.S. Uh, headquarters buildings. Um, and then of course one uh, one mark that sort of stands here permanently uh, because it hasn't been uh, removed because of the recurring nature of this mission is Canada House. Uh, so it's a you know a large tent uh, where we do all of our uh, morale and welfare activities. Uh, we've done a lot of enhancements to that area. Uh, we plan on lending it to the U.S. forces over the uh, the next few months while we're not here. Uh, but you can't miss that when you drive up to the the giant deck that we built with the huge Canada House logo on it. It's uh, it's almost like Canadian sovereign territory. That's that's awesome. I love it. I hope one day I'll get the chance to visit and uh, and see it for myself. I hope I can come along with you. I've had a good time over here. It's a great place to deploy. Fantastic. Lieutenant Colonel Rock, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I hope you have a safe journey home. That was Lieutenant Colonel Rock of the Royal Canadian Air Force speaking to us from Romania. Please check back more often for stories like this from around the world. If you have any comments or questions you'd like answered, uh, any suggestions or any topics you want to hear about, please write to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, and have a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.